Due to the nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, harm against minors, and suicidal ideation. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. To get help on mental health and LGBTQ plus issues, visit spotify.com resources. Bill Thomas sits in his usual spot at his desk. This is his domain. It's where he takes calls, answers emails, pours over internet databases and archives. Today, he's looking for the same thing he always is. Tips about a string of murders that occurred in Virginia back in the 1980s. It's an old case, but still, Bill's had some luck. In the last five years, he's gotten dozens of leads. It's why he keeps up this routine. Calls, emails, archives. He'll probably do this until one of those leads turns into a legitimate break in the case. The thing is, Bill's not a professional investigator. His sister was one of the victims. And now, over 35 years later, he's still trying to make sense of his loved one's murder just like his parents did before him. Because this isn't just a cold case. It's a multi-generational search for answers. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday... I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we'll learn about the murders of three young couples and the disappearance of another, all along the same stretch of road over a three-year period. We'll dive into the hunt for an elusive killer and the surprising way the case resurfaces nearly 30 years later. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Colonial Parkway is a 23-mile stretch of road in Virginia that connects Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown, otherwise known as the Historic Triangle, The highway serves as a link between the three cities. In much the same way, that's what we're looking for in this case. A link. Between 1986 and 1989, on four separate occasions, six different people are killed and two others go missing, all along the Colonial Parkway. It seems obvious they'd be connected, as clear as the dotted yellow line down the center of the parkway. But the harder you look, the fuzzier that connection gets. There are similarities between the cases, but nothing definitive. It's possible the location is just a coincidence. Or is it? That's the frustrating back and forth that investigators, victims' family members, and residents along the Colonial Parkway endure for decades. And after you hear this story... Chances are you'll be wondering the same thing. On October 12, 1986, 
A jogger runs along the Colonial Parkway in Virginia. Trees cover the winding road and woods stretch out on either side. Overlooks and pull-offs allow travelers to soak in their surroundings. In these early morning hours, it's peaceful. As the jogger moves along, they notice a Honda Civic at an overlook. It looks like it's been pushed off an embankment into the brush. The car seems to have been abandoned since the owner's nowhere in sight. Something's clearly not right, so the jogger calls the police. Officers soon arrive to check out the car. That's when they realize it isn't abandoned. Two young women are in the car, one in the back seat and one in the hatchback. Both their throats have been slashed. There's blood everywhere. The car itself has been pushed off the side of the road. It's doused in diesel fuel, but nothing's burned. Authorities think the suspect tried to set it on fire, but didn't realize that diesel is less flammable than standard gasoline. State investigators make quick work of the scene and identify the victims, thanks to a wallet on the driver's seat floor. The woman in the trunk is 27-year-old Kathy Thomas, and they soon deduce the other woman is 21-year-old Rebecca Dowski. The authorities contact Kathy's parents, who share the heartbreaking news with her three brothers. Eventually, the family gives investigators some insight into Kathy and Rebecca. Kathy has just left her service in the U.S. Navy and was working as a stockbroker. She was thinking about going to graduate school. Rebecca was a business administration major at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. She worked in the English department and at a nearby daycare. The two women were also dating, but it's not clear whether Kathy's family told investigators this at the time. The Thomases were supportive, but the women had largely been keeping their relationship a secret. That's because in 1986, it was illegal to be gay in the Navy. Kathy had recently left as a step toward living a more authentic life. Still, even outside of the military, lesbian couples weren't welcome everywhere. While the stunned families grieved, the FBI combs over the crime scene. The FBI's involvement feels like a big escalation, but it's actually just a jurisdiction thing. The Colonial Parkway travels through the Colonial National Historical Park, which is federal land, so this crime is technically under their purview. FBI Special Assistant Irvin Wells gets briefed on the murders. A medical examiner has determined the cause of death was strangulation, which means the women's throats were cut after they were killed. To Wells, that means these murders are overkill, which is when an attacker does more than necessary to kill their victim. This leads Wells to wonder if the killer knew the women and whether their deaths were personal. But when he examines the crime scene, he notices rope burns on the women's hands and necks. It suggests the killer subdued them somehow. But Kathy and Rebecca were two young, smart, athletic women, so Wells believes they would have fought back. And yet, they were subdued. Then he clocks that the window of the driver's seat is rolled down. 
and the glove box is open, as though Kathy had been reaching for her license and registration. Is it possible the killer impersonated a police officer to catch his victims off guard? Or, perhaps worse, could he actually be a law enforcement agent? This becomes the prevailing theory. Wells and his fellow investigators believe that the killer could have posed as an officer in order to render the women compliant right from the jump. He could have also approached the car at night with a flashlight in order to obstruct their vision. We should note that investigators immediately assume the killer is a male. A few recent studies support this theory, like a 2019 Penn State study that points out male serial killers tend to hunt their victims who are often strangers. On the other hand, female serial killers usually target people they know. You may have noticed, we're already talking about serial killers here. That's because the FBI starts profiling this culprit in the same way they analyze serial killers, after only the first set of victims. It's like they suspect the other shoe will eventually drop. A year later, it does. In September 1987, 20-year-old David Knobling and 14-year-old Robin Edwards are reported missing. We don't know the exact nature of their relationship, only that earlier that day, Robin went on a date with David's younger cousin, which David and his brother chaperoned. Later that night, Robin and David headed to an overlook on the Colonial Parkway. The next day, a sheriff's deputy discovers a pickup truck in a parking lot near the James River. A door is left open, the keys are still in the ignition, the radio is on, and the wipers are running. The deputy also notices a wallet left on the dashboard. He grabs it and checks for a license. It's David Knobling's. Authorities reach out to David's family. According to them, the truck is David's prized possession. He would never leave it abandoned. Investigators also reach out to Robin's family. They show her mom photos of a pair of shoes left in the trunk. Robin's mom immediately recognizes them as her daughter's because of the way they're colored all over with markers. Officers surmise that David and Robin must be together, hopefully alive. But it's not long before those hopes are dashed. After a three-day search for the two of them, Robin's body is found near the riverbank, and then David's own father finds his son nearby. Both have been shot in the back of the head, execution style. These murders occurred about 30 miles away from the area on the Colonial Parkway where Kathy and Rebecca were killed a year earlier. But this time it's on state land, not federal. So Virginia state investigators take over the case. Right away, the similarities to the previous double homicide are hard to ignore. Both sets of people were killed in vehicles, presumably at night, right off the parkway in areas known as lovers' lanes. One notable difference is the method of killing. David and Robin were shot, not strangled. 
But authorities still suspect one thing. They've got a serial killer on their hands. They move forward with their investigation, confident in this theory, but they don't make much progress before tragedy strikes again. Hi, listeners. In honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, ParCast is presenting a new collection of captivating stories you do not want to miss. On Disappearances, Sarah Turney examines the disturbing crimes linked to the Highway of Tears and the Bethesda Home for Girls. Plus, she welcomes the founders of the Black and Missing Foundation for a special discussion. Catch these episodes starting May 4th. Then on Unsolved Murders, Sarah joins Wendy and me for three no-body homicide cases rife with cons, conspiracies, and conflicting statements. The Unsolved Murders special, The Missing Dead, starts May 16th. Follow Disappearances and Unsolved Murders to hear all of these episodes all month long. Listen free only on Spotify. In April 1988, seven months after the second Colonial Parkway attack, 20-year-old Keith Call and 18-year-old Cassandra Haley leave a college party. It's at Christopher Newport University, about 20 miles south of Williamsburg. Eyewitnesses say they took off together around 1.30 or 2 a.m. They're never heard from again. Keith's car is discovered by a couple of park rangers the next morning. It's at an overlook by the York River, only a few miles away from where Kathy and Rebecca were killed in their car. But this time, there are no bodies inside. The rangers call in the abandoned car to the police. In the meantime, they search the vehicle to figure out who it belongs to. They find a woman's shoe on the passenger seat floor and men's and women's clothing in the back seat. Their best guess? Keith and Cassandra stripped and ran into the river for a late-night swim. Except, Cassandra's family swears that Cassandra would never do that. She's scared of the water. Not to mention, it would have been freezing at that time of year. Keith's family is equally confused. To them, it doesn't make sense why he would have driven out to the parkway. For one, it's out of the way of both the party and where Cassandra lived. For another, Keith knew about the previous murders. He thought going out there was dangerous. Which makes Keith's family think someone forced him and Cassandra to go there. Or someone hurt the couple somewhere else, then dumped the car there. This case goes back to the FBI. Another friend of Keith's, Lisa Brown contacts them after she hears he's missing. She tells them she saw Keith at the college party the night before his car was found. The Bureau says they'll send someone out to talk to her, but no one ever takes her statement. Presumably, they're too focused on the search for Keith and Cassandra. FBI agents coordinate an extensive search. Helicopters look from the skies, police drag the river, bloodhounds are brought out on boats to try and catch a scent from over the water. 
By the way, this technique is still relatively new at the time. Officers started training dogs to detect smells over water only about 10 years earlier, in 1975. So some members of law enforcement are skeptical, but science shows that decomposing bodies underwater can emit gases, body oils, and tissue that all make their way up to the surface. From there, it's the same as tracing a scent on land. Unfortunately, it doesn't yield results this time. The dogs don't pick up a scent. Agents are back to square one. The best clues authorities have are in Keith's car. But there's a problem. The evidence has been tampered with. When the park rangers first searched the car, they didn't realize it was a potential murder scene. So they didn't use gloves. They even removed some of the clothing they found. And apparently, when they realized the situation was more serious than an abandoned car, they tried to put it all back the way they'd found it. But it was too late. The entire scene was compromised. Sadly, the leads on this case dry up rather quickly. And as the weeks turn into months, Keith and Cassandra's bodies are still missing. About a year and a half later, in September 1989, another abandoned car is found. This time, it's on the side of a rest stop, just off an interstate highway that connects to the Colonial Parkway. Like the other cases, the keys are still in the ignition, but there's no sign of a struggle. Virginia State Police are in charge of this case, now making it two for the state and two for the FBI. Officers quickly learned that the car belongs to 21-year-old Daniel Lauer and that he'd been traveling to Virginia Beach with his brother's girlfriend, 18-year-old Anna Maria Phelps. The two were supposed to arrive at Daniel's brother's place the day before, but never did. Here's the weird part. The car is found on the westbound exit ramp, which heads in the opposite direction of Virginia Beach. Once again, authorities search for the pair, but they don't find anything. Some wonder, or perhaps hope, that Daniel and Anna Marie just ran off together. But with all the rumors about a serial killer in the area, it seems like everyone's bracing for the worst. Six weeks later, some hunters stumble upon two decomposing bodies. They're in a forested area near a logging trail, impossible to see from the road. Virginia State Police Officer Daniel Plott arrives on the scene. He has forensics run analysis on the couple's remains to confirm their identities. They are, in fact, Daniel and Anna Maria. But determining a cause of death is harder due to the state of their bodies. The medical examiner eventually concludes that Anna Maria likely died of a stab wound but Daniel's cause of death remains undetermined. Forensics also find a small cut on one of Anna Maria's finger bones. Officer Plot believes Anna Maria sustained the wound when trying to block her attacker from cutting her throat. Like the other cases, there are things investigators will never know unless they find the killer. State authorities work in tandem with the FBI to come up with a theory for this case. 
Here are the main points they're mulling over. In all of the Colonial Parkway cases so far, wallets and glove boxes were found open as if the victims had been reaching for a driver's licenses or registrations. All the attacks happened at night in secluded areas involving young couples with most of the cars found near water. Not to mention, double homicides are rare, and three, potentially four, in just three years, all within the same 30-mile radius of the same stretch of road? Well, that's even more uncommon. But there's no clear motive and no concrete M.O. Some believe they're dealing with a killer who is evolving, changing his methods each time he kills, But for others, things just don't add up. The cases are similar, yes, but there are also differences. They can't be conclusively linked. And then, just like that, the killings stop. Years go by. The Parkway communities regain a sense of peace, and the pressure on authorities to find the killer lessens, But people still want answers, especially the victims' families. For the next 12 years, investigators try to bring them closure, but there just aren't any more leads. Until 2001. That's when an FBI trainee named Steve Spingola starts helping out with the Bureau's stack of cold cases. As he pours over the files, he comes across the Colonial Parkway murders and takes a look with fresh eyes. At this point, the public has long been convinced that the double homicides were the work of a serial killer. But Spingola isn't so sure. He thinks the serial killer angle is just the easiest pill for people to swallow. At least, it's easier than admitting there were four different attacks in one small area. Spingola looks into Kathy and Rebecca's case first, there are aspects there that he doesn't think were properly looked into, mainly that they were romantically involved. Spingola thinks this could have been a motive for their killer. We'll get into this more later, but Oxygen catches wind of the Parkway murders and eventually produces an in-depth documentary about them. In it, they interview an FBI profiler named Jim Clemente who suggests the killer sees himself as a moral enforcer. Well, that's someone who wants to dole out punishment on those he sees acting in what he deems a sinful way. That same documentary also reveals that Kathy and Rebecca regularly visited the same area of the parkway on Thursday nights. So it's possible the killer wasn't just lashing out at a random couple, but targeted them specifically. If Spingola is right that the killer had it out for Kathy and Rebecca, then that muddies the water for the other three cases. But even if there aren't four separate perpetrators, Spingola does believe there might be more than one. He looks at all the files and focuses on the last double homicide, Daniel and Anna Maria. It doesn't seem to fit with the other three. Daniel and Anna Maria had been on their way to Virginia Beach, But unlike the other cases, they weren't pulled off into a lover's lane. They were at a rest stop. Their attacker could have been anyone. But for whatever reason, 
Spingola's multiple killer theory doesn't go anywhere. Once again, the case falls into the trap of so many like it. With no new leads, the files start collecting dust. And even though the victims' families desperately want answers, there's not much that can be done. That is, until the FBI makes a major mistake. In 2008, nearly two decades after the final set of murders, a man named Fred Atwell attends class at a school for private investigators. Atwell's a former Virginia sheriff's deputy who knows about the Colonial Parkway murders, but it's been a long time since he last thought about the case. And what his teacher shows to the classroom comes as a big shock. Fred Atwell is stunned to see photographs of the Colonial Parkway crime scenes and victims being used as teaching materials in a private investigator class he's taking. As far as Atwell's aware, the Colonial Parkway cases are still open investigations. No one should have these photos. He reaches out to both the FBI and Virginia State Police to let them know. But according to Atwell, they don't do anything about it. That doesn't sit well with the former deputy. So in 2009, he goes to the local news channel, WTKR, and tells them that nearly 80 crime scene photos were leaked from the FBI to this private training agency. WTKR reports on Atwell's scoop, and the FBI scrambles to round up the photos and offer an explanation. Apparently, a, quote, non-agent FBI photographer had taken the slides without authorization and gave them to the school. The photographer passed away a few years earlier, and the school continued using them. Thanks to Atwell's whistleblowing, the FBI secures all the photos, but more importantly, the case is now back at the forefront of people's minds. Although, for some, it never left. Bill Thomas is an older brother of Kathy Thomas, one of the first women killed on the parkway in 1986. We mentioned Bill at the top of this episode. He's been asking for answers about his sister ever since she died. Over two decades later, authorities still haven't given him or his parents any of those answers. Bill's never actually spoken to the other victims' families but after the FBI leak, he decides to reach out to them. He feels they have an opportunity to make demands. The FBI messed up, and now they owe the families. Bill manages to convince other siblings and parents of the victims to team up as a united front. Then he contacts the FBI. He wants them to spend more time and resources on these cases. In 2010, a year after the photo leaks, the FBI agrees to meet with all the families. It's the first, and thus far only, in-person meeting with everyone together. FBI agents discuss the status of the case and answer questions. We don't know what exactly is said in this meeting. That's partly because these are still considered open cases, and authorities don't want details slipping out. 
The FBI doesn't share everything they know with the families, nor do they share files with the media. Regardless, the families feel this meeting is a step in the right direction, and they're really glad the cases are getting another look. Many of them also feel better knowing they have whistleblower Fred Atwell on their side. He seems to genuinely want to help and has been offering support to the families. He's a proponent of the theory that the murders were committed by at least one, if not two, law enforcement agents. He even names names, although he has no proof and no one's charged based on his accusations. But then, Atwell starts acting strange. First, he claims he's in contact with an attorney who's working for an anonymous client who was involved in the murders. Atwell says he's just a middleman, but the client wants $20,000 to reveal the locations of Keith Call and Cassandra Haley's bodies. Those are the victims in the third Parkway attack who've never been found. Virginia authorities are skeptical, but if there's any truth behind his assertion, then they should look into it. However, after questioning Atwell, authorities apparently decide his claims aren't worth pursuing. Then, the following year, in 2011, Atwell allegedly runs a fake raffle, which he advertises as a charity event. He says the prize is a new car, and all the proceeds will go to the Colonial Parkway Victims Fund. But Virginia police learn he's actually pocketing some of the money for himself. So they arrest him on charges of obtaining money under false pretenses. Soon after the robbery, Atwell allegedly calls a suicide hotline and claims that he's a suspect in a serial murder investigation. He thinks the FBI is after him and that he wants to die by suicide. It's unclear whether authorities verify this call, but Atwell spirals further from there. A few weeks later, he robs a woman at gunpoint and steals $60 from her. Officers quickly catch Atwell and arrest him again. For the charges of obtaining money under false pretenses, Atwell enters a guilty plea and tells the court, quote, It's my fault. I messed up. I'm sorry it happened. The judge gives him two years and eight months, but he's also found guilty of the aggravated robbery charges and gets another eight years. The two sentences have to be served consecutively, so Atwell's looking at the next decade in prison. Despite his alarming behavior, the families of the Colonial Parkway victims never seem to suspect Atwell himself. Although it's not out of the realm of possibility, given that he would have been in his late 30s at the time of the first murders and presumably working in law enforcement in the Colonial Parkway area. Even if Atwell was considered a suspect, any opportunity to get answers out of him passes in 2018 when he dies in prison. Bill Thomas continues to fight for answers about his sister Kathy's murder every day. He runs a Facebook page that posts updates and he actively passes along tips to the FBI. 
but it's a tough gig. The Colonial Parkway murders have remained in limbo for more than 30 years. And as time passes, the number of people who are alive when the slayings happened becomes fewer and fewer. With cold cases, it's often parents who are fighting for answers. But in this instance, it's been so long that many of the victims' parents have either passed or are in declining health. The burden of keeping the case alive falls to the victim's siblings, like Bill. Joyce Call Canada is another sibling who's still searching for answers on behalf of her family. Her little brother, Keith Call, along with Cassandra Haley, disappeared and was never found. Joyce still holds out hope that he might return someday. It's why she hyphenated her last name. If he ever comes back, she wants him to be able to find her. Cassandra's sisters, Paula and Terry Haley, both write letters to the FBI on a regular basis, looking for updates and answers. Likewise, Robin Edwards' sister, Jeanette, has taken over as her family spokesperson. Her dad passed away, and her mom can no longer deal with the stress of the case. Jeanette's son was only a year old when her 14-year-old sister was murdered. Now he's a grown adult with three children of his own. For all these siblings, they hope they'll get answers before their children have to seek them. Perhaps out of that fear, in 2021, the families once again come together to make a new demand of the FBI. They want DNA tested. Bill Thomas gives an interview with the Virginia Gazette about this. He says the FBI won't confirm whether there was any DNA collected from the crime scenes but he's sure that three of the four cases do have DNA. Bill and the rest of the families are inspired by the testing done to catch the Golden State Killer. That killer's crimes had been unsolved for even longer than the Colonial Parkway murders. If you listen to our episode, Finding the Golden State Killer, you probably know how that all went down. But just in case, the headline is... Investigators took DNA from old crime scenes and then used genetic genealogy sites to find the Golden State Killer's identity. Bill, Joyce, Paula, Terry, and Jeanette hope the same can be done in their cases. It's reasonable for the families to be hopeful. Right now is perhaps one of the best times for cold cases to get a second look. DNA testing aside, there's also the recent public interest in true crime stories, which keeps cold cases like this one front and center. Oxygen's Lover's Lane murders came out in 2021 and is supported by the victims' families, some of whom talk with the show's hosts. The series isn't the only one to question the serial killer theory, but it's certainly one of the loudest. They painstakingly pour over the evidence and ask the question, what could authorities have done differently? But they don't find an answer either. The Colonial Parkway murders are no closer to being solved today than they were in the 1980s. But that doesn't mean they never will be. So long as people continue to push for answers, there is always the hope that justice will be served even if it takes generations.
thanks again for listening. We'll be back next Monday with another cold case. For more information on the Colonial Parkway murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found Oxygen's documentary, Lover's Lane Murders, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Alex Burns, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. Carter Roy.